Hey everybody, I thought I would just record a brief intro to this as this segment is actually of me being a guest on someone else's podcast, the Steel on Steel podcast. Um, kind of a weird accident really because I got an email um, where they were inquiring to be on a different show, so it seems like my email is similar to someone else's or whatever. But anyway, it resulted in a conversation that I felt was extremely productive, so we decided to go ahead and do a show together, and I'm probably also going to have him on V-Radio as well, because I feel this talk has been great. So to those of you who are my conservative-leaning audience, I think you will really like this guy, and I'm going to provide his, uh, ad basically his e the address for you can check him out on online um, you know, in the description, because I think you would really like him. He's a definitely an awake um, right-leaning guy who still, however, you know, has his head screwed on straight and sees the importance of being able to have rational discourse with people who they may not agree with about everything, which is exactly what I do. So um, I'm going to go ahead and just let it go here, but I just want to be clear, you know, again, um, thanks for tuning in and um, check out this guy's work too, and I'll probably have him on later. Don't forget to check out v-radio.us. Um, and there you will find like a little website that has all the links to my various social media because I am still getting notifications from people that they're not getting notified of my new YouTube videos. Um, you know, and it's the only way to really be sure that you're going to get all of my content. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to V Radio. Well, in the day of acrimony in which we find ourselves with people watching their own media sites, censors running around proclaiming to us infallibly what is true and what is not true, what we must believe and must not believe, can people of level heads on any side come to any kind of an agreement? Let's find out. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Steel on Steel, taking the 30,000-foot view in economics, politics, and religion. John Luffler here, Steve Schiller producing. Neil Kiernan's joining me right now, host of V Radio, a podcast podcast devoted to independent and third-party activists. He says, not right or left, awake. And he writes at VBlog for V Radio as well. He previously ran for Congress in Michigan's 10th District in 2008, but didn't win. He was listed as a Green Party candidate to do for president back in 2020, but obviously they didn't win either. Nevertheless, all of that under the bridge. Can we arrive at any kind of a consensus here? Oh, I use that word. Please forgive me. I have used the wrong word. You know, it's like, uh, what do you call it? It's like Dracula saying, frankly, Igor, you make me a little cross. Oh, why did I use that word? <laughs> anyway, Neil's here. Does everybody have to grind away in your own categories? And I've seen that here in Idaho when we have people come from out of town Maybe they come for one church service and they're here for one or two days, and then they go home and write a hit piece about the place. And I don't think that does a service to anybody, to be honest with you, Neil. Everybody's writing their pieces, but they don't always reflect reality. You know, the right will take certain things and then blow certain issues out of proportion. And the left, and I'm just saying, how do we ever have a conversation if we can't really grind together the facts? And right now you can't. Every time I read a piece that somebody on the left writes that's even halfway decently written, it is so peppered with assumptions with which I disagree. Sure. And I go, no, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about this. You're wrong about that. And so how can we agree with your conclusion if I think your assumptions are all messed up? Right. No, I agree completely. There's a lot of assuming going on. That's a major part of the problem. 
My thoughts on this situation have to do with the fact that I think that, for one thing, we have to dial it back a little bit and take our emotional attachments out of our position. And it's not to say that you can't ever be passionate about things going on in the world. It's just that the social media algorithms are designed in such a way to get people upset because they know that'll keep you interested. The problem is, is people that are upset don't really make very good decisions. They don't think clearly. Former Democratic candidate Andrew Yang pointed out that the more stressful people get, your IQ literally drops. Like that's scientifically proven. So if we're all stressed out and we're all like really caught up in the emotional tribalism of the situation, we're not thinking clearly. And I think that these assumptions that you were mentioning, that's a very valid point. And both sides are definitely engaged in it. And unfortunately, it only makes it worse. I think the biggest thing that has to change is people have to be able to, first of all, show patience for the other side if they want to be able to talk to them. I think what goes on now is that we spit slogans at each other and we have these caricatures of what the other side is and they don't really hold up to reality. But we've stopped talking to each other like human beings. We just, like I said, tribalism, we divide ourselves up into our little groups and then we have all these preconceived notions about the other person. That's, I would say, is what makes me different is that I know people on the right. I interact with them all the time and I'm friends with them. And I don't make them agreeing with absolutely everything I say a prerequisite to interact with me. And I think that's where we have to meet in the middle. You know, we have to figure that much out. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to ask people to compromise their principles. It's just that we can't even clearly communicate what our principles are right now. You know, there was an analogy that I made that I think really fits this. It's like, imagine you're playing volleyball in like middle school gym class and the gym teacher puts up a point for your team But you know the ball was out. You know that that was wrong. But you don't say anything because you want your team to win. And that's how politics has become. It's like a team sport. you got to go with your team, even if your team is wrong about something. That's going to require not only that we try to see the way the other side is looking at things and understand it in good faith, we've also got to see where our own side might be doing some things wrong. And I do a lot of that on my show because... At this point, I feel like that's kind of where it needs to start. As a person who, quote unquote, fits one of these sides, and I say that because I don't, I don't like sides in the first place. I mean, we talked about this off the air about how I feel that our politics are packaged and you're expected to follow your package to the letter. You know, I'm pro-gun rights, but I'm also pro-health care. Where does that go? Where do I fit? You know, I don't. But regardless, my side of the situation, so to speak, I feel responsible for them and correcting them when they say crazy things that are just not true. And I guess that's where I would start it is just that we have to be able to see things clearly. And that has to be our main objective. Even if we don't agree with the other side, we have to at least be honest about the things that we do agree about. Maybe some of the things that they are right about. Otherwise, we can't even begin to have a conversation. It just becomes about no Nobody on the right can ever be correct if you're on the left, and nobody on the left can ever be correct if you're on the right. If that's the case, then we're not thinking anymore. We're just fighting. And or throwing slogans back and forth, which is, you know, right. it doesn't do anything for anybody when that happens. Well, right, exactly. And the slogans frequently are word games that are themselves, like Patriot Act. Well, I have to support the Patriot Act. I'm a patriot. You know, Black Lives Matter. What, you mean you don't agree with Black Lives Matter? Does that mean that you believe that Black Lives don't matter? Well, no. It means that I don't agree with, say, riots, stuff like that. I disagree with some things they do. Same thing with Antifa, anti-fascist. Well, what do you mean you don't like Antifa? That means you're a fascist. These slogans and concepts are frequently written in such a way to 
force you into a scenario where you're not allowed to say anything negative about them. But it's important to recognize that both sides do this to some degree. That's where the problems lie. So, you know, I think you bill yourself not right or left, just awake. Sure. When you go on to these issues, do you deal with, say, for example, blogs on both sides? And if so, then how are you treated on those sides? Well, you know, the funny thing is, maybe it's because I understand how to talk to them and I believe they're human beings. I actually have more pleasant conversations with people on the right right now. I think that the left is being manipulated to be completely irrational. Like, I think that that's part of the key. There's a moment on one of my videos where I take a clip from a documentary about what happened to Brett Weinstein at Evergreen State College. And basically, it was a witch hunt of a guy where they claimed he was racist because he didn't agree with one thing that they were going to do in their racial activism. And there's a moment where he gets away from the witch hunt because they had like 40 students mobilized to go after this guy. And there's a moment when he gets away from them and he's only with just a couple of students and he starts to make some headway. And they realize what he's doing, you know, that he's getting away from their witch hunt. So one of them comes over and confronts him and literally says, you have to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of communication. Because in their labeling whiteness as the bad guy, which, by the way, everything that I've seen so far, what they're identifying as whiteness is actually just American values held by anybody who lives here for a long time, no matter what color they are. But regardless, they've identified logic and reason itself as part of the problem. They've identified the scientific method as part of the problem. And what I think is going on there is there's an effort to try to disarm the ability of those students in these left-leaning colleges to be able to think for themselves, so they'll just go along with whatever the mob tells them. And when we say mob, that's kind of a misnomer, because these people are definitely being directed by someone, you know, by some people. There are people who are aware of what they're doing, aware of how they're controlling these groups of people and influencing them towards certain ends. Just like in the Salem witch trials, there was a few key people who understood that what they were doing was controlling the mob to get what they wanted. It's very dangerous if we don't pay attention to it, for sure. As far as like how I get received, most of the time what you're going to find is that people are so locked in. I would say, because I do a lot of debating on the internet, maybe more than I should, I probably reach out of 100, maybe out of 100 people might suddenly change their mind. But what happens most of the time is that, first of all, I think I, I mentioned this to you once off the air, but there was an experiment done called the Ash Conformity Experiment, where basically they put lines on a wall, and one of them is the same length as the other. And you go into this experiment, and then everybody else in the room is giving the wrong answer, only to find out later that everybody else in the room was actually a paid actor, like they've all been paid to give the wrong answer. What the experiment, however, discovered was that in many cases, People will go along with what everybody else in the room said, even if they know that it's not true. The main exception to that is when somebody else, because they might tell one of the actors in the experiment to go ahead and agree, no, no, it's actually this line is the one that matches the other line, the other line, basically gives the right answer. So my objective is to try to be that person. That the thing that you have to understand is, in many cases, you may not be reaching anybody who's going to publicly come out and say, no, he's right, that this is what's going on. You're going to get either the people who just lurk, which is actually probably the majority, the people who just read conversations like this and don't say anything, but it still affects them that somebody said it. You know, or you're going to get the people who maybe they might private message you and say, hey, I'm really glad you did that. 
thank you because that's what I was thinking too, but they're not going to get involved in the fight. Those are the kinds of reactions that I get. But I do believe that there's a growing movement of people who are sick of the way that things have completely gone crazy. And that's true of people on the left and people on the right. And I think that we need to create a movement geared towards this kind of rational discourse, because it's not just about whether or not the right or the left will win. You know, I've commonly said that, like, if there is some kind of fascist movement intent on trying to create a totalitarian regime in the United States, Antifa and the Proud Boys and the MAGA hat wearers and the BLM protesters are all going to be sitting in the same concentration camp. And I'm not saying that's what's happening, but if such a thing was to happen, that's what's going to happen. But those people are all going to be in the same boat, and by then it's going to be too late. Yeah, the rowdies all wind up in the same place. I would add something right. on top of what you're saying, and that is it's not just a matter of categorizing people and or listening. We have now reached the stage where dissenting, and it's not just the experiment like I want to be with the crowd, dissenting carries penalties on college campuses sure. and in the job place. And that's why people are self-censoring, not because they disagree or don't. It's because if they don't say the right thing, that's overt Marxism. I mean, when you're looking at it like that, I don't see much of that coming from the right. I keep looking, but I don't see it. I do see it heavily from the left, though. That's my observation. No, and you're not, I can tell you as somebody who spends a lot of time with the left, you're not really wrong. There is absolutely a Marxist thing going on here. And when you're on their secret forums, the ones that, you know, they don't expect that anybody who doesn't agree with them could ever be on, they just openly admit it. The thing that's a problem is this. There are levels to these two sides of things. And it just so happens that for whatever reason, they've decided to make the left their tool this time around. But there are people, for example, who might have voted for Tulsi Gabbard or Bernie Sanders who are not communists and would not support that, would not support authoritarianism, are not anti-police. But they're people who have been driven to be quiet. That's the situation that you're talking about. That's why I said I have more rational conversations on the right. Because on the left, if you're a blasphemer, and I'm just using that term not to be hyperbolic, I'm using it in the concept of you dare deviate. You're absolutely right that it's even worse if there's penalties for giving the right answer. And I actually made that observation during my video series, Do You Think for Yourself, when I played clips of the Ash Conformity Experiment, was like, now expect take the same situation and imagine that you know that the answer is wrong, but there's a mob of angry people standing next to you, you're going to be even less likely to do it. But you're not wrong that at this moment, it's absolutely more on the left. There's no question. I'm just curious who it is that's playing the puppet string. Because I think at the end of the day, the fact that there's two political parties with opposing viewpoints, supposedly on paper, but they all seem to work for the same people at the end of the day, they're just playing with us. Like, somebody's manipulating this. I do believe that there's a Marxist element to it. I do think that China probably has something to do with it as well, because it mirrors the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The whole idea of turning your college students against their parents was exactly what Mao did when he was trying to reaffirm, you know, where he was coming from. So I totally agree with that. That's absolutely going on. What I think the problem is, is that we have to figure out how to move forward and that's going to mean that you're going to need to figure out a way to ally the elements on the right that have their heads screwed on straight with the elements on the left that have their heads screwed on straight. Because at this point, it's going to take such an allegiance to actually be able to overcome what could be the next dark step of things. That's why I'm actually trying to get together different thinkers from the left-leaning perspective 
who agree with what you and I are saying and that it's very dangerous. I think that most of the problems that we have in this country, in order to solve them, will have to be solved. I guess, who was it? Dennis Kucinich, back when he was very close with Ron Paul, said that the eagle up on the Congress has two wings and it needs two wings to fly. And that's why Kucinich was very uh, progressive and Ron Paul is very libertarian. But they actually worked together on a lot of things in the Congress because they realized on some very crucial issues like the Constitution, they agreed. That's the kind of stuff that I think at the end of the day, you know, we can bicker about health care and all of that later. I'm more worried about the unraveling of the fabric of our society as a whole. And that's what I think some of these people want. Because basically, Chairman Mao's strategy was to create circumstances of, of catastrophe so that he could show up and rescue people from it. And if somebody's drumming up the left to try to make them look crazy, I think it's because there's, on the other side of it, basically, I think that people who would want to do that would be the ones who were involved with writing stuff like the Patriot Act. Because if they can do that, and then they can label all leftist ideology as the same terroristic group, then where does that take us? Any activism will be terrorism. They're already trying to do that with their obsession with January 6th. They're already trying to do that with trying to say that supposedly right-wing extremists are the biggest threat, the biggest terrorist threat or whatever, which is nonsense. But if they can drum it up that way, eventually any kind of dissent will become terrorism. I think that's what the writing on the wall told me back in 2000. I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I'm trying to figure out how many straight-headed people we have in the country. Because I've found when you start a conversation with people like that, you can actually make progress. Mm-hmm. We can't do it the way it's structured now because, well, everybody goes to their own media sites to reinforce what they believe. But the Absolutely. flip side, like I said, on the left, there is a penalty that they are actively trying to impose. But I, yeah. like, like you do, I keep pointing out, you know, fascism and Marxism are two sides of the very same coin, even though they're juxtaposed. And you're right. The Marxists do use a dialectical process get X to fight with Y, thinking that that's the problem, but really they're moving you to Z. Well, right. But on the fascist side of it, they use the fear of communists to try to justify their Exactly. You know, like, I mean, they created that Reichstag fire or whatever and found a communist patsy and then sold the communist threat to the German people to give Hitler more power. And I think that's one of the major problems right now. Okay, the critical theory books, which are basically the original basis behind the critical race theory book, suggest that authoritarianism only comes from the right. Like, that's spelled out in some of these books. That's just nonsense. The left is totally capable of being authoritarian. But I argue with these kids, and they've read these books, and they believe, well, we don't lead to authoritarianism. Our system can't possibly be authoritarian. And I'm like, yeah, that's what everybody says until it's too late. And I think that maybe in the common consciousness, they think trying to do it through the left angle might go along a little easier because in the common memory of people, more people have forgotten that. I think people remember the Nazis really well. Maybe they don't really remember Soviet communism and the problems that it had. That Maybe they don't know that as well. I know the students that I talk to nowadays you know, their professors are teaching them that all the bad stuff that Stalin did was actually just propaganda. Not true, blah, 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 blah. You know, we have a generation (laughs) of people basically that are being taught that that's nonsense. The funny thing is, is that, again, even Bernie Sanders supporters, Bernie openly stated that he opposed all authoritarianism. They're not on board with that. But when you go, you know, people think that Bernie might be connected. Problem is, is like, for example, I was involved in the Green Party 
quite a bit because I worked on Jesse Ventura's exploratory committee for president. And we were looking at maybe running him as a green. And the greens were completely taken over by radical communists. The guy that they put on their ticket this last time literally posted a picture of Karl Marx with his logo on it saying, happy birthday on Marx's birthday. Those people were nasty to Bernie supporters. Bernie supporters are not left enough for them. That's why I said <laughs> it's important to understand there's layers to this thing. You know, Tulsi Gabbard, I would say, had a much wider appeal to both sides, but there was a genuine nature about her. And I, I think we missed an opportunity to have a good leader for us. But regardless, as far as the thinking is concerned, the Bernie Sanders people and even the AOC people, for example, are not very popular with the far left right now, because part of it is people on the far left are ignorant of what goes on in the Senate and in the Congress. So say the Progressive Caucus, for example, has a single senator, Bernie Sanders. Then they have like about 100 congressmen out of 540, I think. So I guess there's people that are whipping up the far left into now they're crapping all over Bernie, they're crapping all over even the squad, like the people on the right basically think are somehow everybody's heroes. The truth is, the deep left thinks they're all losers and that they're not delivering on what they promised and all that. And I actually worked for Senator Mike Gravel. I called him up one day to ask him what he thought about it. And he basically said, you got a bunch of kids who don't understand how the system works. Until you elect more people to your side, you can't just snap your fingers and change things. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that there seems to be an effort to try to distance the left, even from the few elected officials that even have any authority in the government. You know, and I think that's part of just trying to convince them that the whole system needs to just be destroyed. That's the point that you get at. And a lot of these kids, when you talk to them about, okay, so what then? They don't have that answer. They haven't thought that far ahead. I think that's very dangerous. And it makes me worry that you know, while I don't think they have any hope of succeeding, what I really think is going on is that, for example, I just interacted with some Black Lives Matter people who are really radical on Twitter, and they're like, yeah, we're going to burn down our cities and only open up Black-owned cities. And I'm like, okay, where are you going to get the money to do that? Where are you going to get the resource? They're not realistic about it. They've been convinced that that's the way to go, when anybody who understands economics will tell you that riots destroy local communities. They don't build them. L.A. still hasn't recovered from what happened back with the Rodney King riots economically. It's, it, it probably never will. Somebody is manipulating these people in such a way that it's ironically their own undoing. When I talk about Marxists, this is true, by the way, of fascist revolutions, too. The first thing that Marxist revolutions do is devour their own children because you have three levels in there. You have the casual people. Those, I think, are somewhat the level-headed, casual believers. Then you have the true believers. Those are the ones you're talking about who always come in wide-eyed, very little historic perspective, believing a lot of the lies that are being shoved down their throats. And then the third level, this is the one that really counts. That's where power, money, and control sits. As sure. soon as the PMC crowd gets in, they get rid of the true believers. They don't want the rabble. Well, right. And Hitler had to kill his brown shirts. The people who do the same function. Precisely. Precisely. That's Yeah. And that's actually, there's a lecture you can find on YouTube done by a Soviet KGB defector. His name is Yuri, I want to say Bezmanov. I may be missing Yuri Bezmanov. That's who it is. Yeah. Right. Well, he made a lot of important points. And one of them was that all these people you see doing the civil unrest now, and he's like back in the 80s, and a lot of the stuff he didn't get everything absolutely perfect, but a lot of the things he said was going to happen are happening right now. He's like, when the new regime takes over, they have no use for them. And when those people have been conditioned to think, well, the solution to do when you don't like what the government is doing is to riot, 
they're going to run smack into fascist or authoritarian regime and answers for riot, which is mass slaughter. There isn't going to be nice cops standing across from them, letting them throw bottles and cuss at them anymore. If you riot under an authoritarian regime, you're dead. They'll just kill you. And Yuri was trying to give that point. It's like, you know, only when the boot is on their throat will they get it. Only then. He's like, I could take these people over to the Soviet Union right now and show them the concentration camps for political dissidents. And they still wouldn't believe it. Because he was talking about demoralization of a country. Like, there's a whole strategy that the KGB had. And you can only imagine that the Chinese government probably does the same thing. But one major, really important point that I try to tell people who listen to my show on the right, that he also says during his lectures is, the wealthy will buy the rope that they will be hung with. If they continue to allow their business practices to make it impossible for just people to have a genuine, honest living, that's when the communists show up with a different answer. So the problem doesn't just lie on the shoulders of trying to make sure the communist thought doesn't get to people. What makes people more interested in communist thought, and history has proven this over and over again, is if capitalism breaks down and it's only working for the top percentage, then you're going to find people who are going to look for something else. Well, who's going to show up to give that opportunity? Like, hey, no, I got an idea. Do this instead. Well, it's going to be the communists. Yuri Bezmenov made the same warning. And we came to a point, for example, and this is the part that I think the right really has to introspect about, is the people that we supported who did things like, say, everybody thinks Ronald Reagan's a hero, but Reaganomics was part of a one-two punch back-to-back with NAFTA that gutted our industry, that destroyed all of the jobs that the middle class used to depend on to exist. It wasn't just the Democrats. It wasn't just the Republicans. That's the part that I think, at the end of the day, I hope people will take away from this. All that stuff that we bicker about, like abortion or whatever, the really elite don't actually care about it. They don't care about race either. They want us to. At the end of the day, they all work for the same team, and the rest of this is just window dressing, theater. It's about as realistic as the WWE is as far as the conflicts between the two of them. It's all theater to keep us distracted. In the meantime, they get all the wars they want. They get the financial policies they want. They get anything that they want to create a situation where there is still a small elite and then a bunch of people that are serving them. And I think that the problem is we've overdone the communist scare to the point that we think that that only happens in communism. Right. In capitalism, it can also happen. And when it does, I would say it's more insidious because we sell to people who've been destroyed by the economy. Well, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can be Jeff Bezos. Nobody who is ever in those circles will ever actually believe any of that. And I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just that just like it was possible, you could find yourself in the Politburo in the Soviet Union. You could work your way up theoretically to be at the level that Putin was at when he was in the KGB. You can do that. Not very many people are going to do that. Most people are just going to be out in the field doing all the hard work and the whole time believing that if they just follow the dream, everything will be fine. I think what we should be working on is trying to figure out ways to make ourselves independent of the economy as possible. I think that people need to start looking at off-the-grid technologies and finding ways to take care of themselves. And I say that to the people on the right and to the people on the left. We're coming to a point where they're going to stop having any use for us. The people who are really elite, 
that's where I'm concerned that the future is headed. And if they keep us fighting each other, we won't be prepared for what will come next. You know what I'm telling? We have some people running for school board here and a couple of city councils in North Idaho. And what I will tell them if I have a chance to talk to them, I said the first thing, and I did to one of our previous congressmen, the first thing you have to do is establish a channel directly to your constituents that bypasses the media. You must do that Yep. because they will pervert your message. Yep. I had way more luck going door to door running for Congress than I ever did through the media. And I was never going to win again. But, you know, I remember once I would like walk around. I'm like, man, I'm a libertarian. That guy's got a McCain sign up. I wonder how far I'm going to get because I was a Ron Paul person at the time. And then I went in there and much to my surprise, just the fact that somebody talked to them meant the world to them. And then even as a libertarian, like there was somebody with an Obama sign. I'm like, man, I don't know how this is going to go. And then they voted for me, too. Just the fact that anybody went and talked to them as a human being. That's really what I'd say the major difference is. When I worked for Senator Gravel, my job was to analyze campaigns. So that mindset is still stuck in my head, even though I haven't been doing that for a while. But way early in 2016, I saw two things. One, they're really underestimating Trump, really underestimating Trump. And two, they're also underestimating Bernie Sanders. Because what do the two guys have in common beyond anything else? They both actually had a genuineness about them. You know, they both in their own way, had ways of saying that they cared. And I remember once having a conversation on my Facebook wall that I had to carefully moderate because everybody was fighting. And when I was finished with it, they agreed with me, this is mostly Trump supporters, that if Bernie Sanders was elected, they'd be better off than they would have been with Joe Biden. And the reason why is that if Bernie Sanders say he tries his health care plan and it doesn't work, Bernie Sanders will try to change it to help fix it. Whereas Biden will just spend all of his time trying to pretend he didn't make any mistake. And on the other side of that, if you had gotten any of the other stuffed shirts that the Republicans are running, they weren't genuine either. What was getting through to people is that people are now waking up to the idea that you may not agree with everything they say, but you genuinely believe that they sincerely care. So that's why, even though Ron Paul and I, I don't really agree with a lot of the things he says anymore, but the fact that he was a genuine person who I really did feel cared went a really long way. You know, I'd say the same thing about of a lot of different politicians. But that factor, it was amazing that Bernie got as far as he did, to be honest. Back in 2008, they'd have gotten him out of the debate as fast as possible, just like they tried to do to Ron. You know, that's another thing that's bipartisan that they say, well, that's just the corruption of the DNC. I'm like, well, <laughs> let me tell you a story about a guy named Ron Paul, because the Republicans wanted him out as fast as possible. They don't like anybody anti-war. Guaranteed, if you talk bad about the wars, and it's not to say that you don't support the troops, that's not, I absolutely support the troops, no question. But I think Vietnam taught us some lessons about how there's a lot of money interests involved with when we go to war, and they don't care about our troops. Our troops are just pawns on their table. But anyway. Having worked with Ron Paul back in the 70s. Oh, wow. I was on a video audio project with him at AB Teletape in Denver. He's a genuine person. And I've had him on the show quite a bit. And we just have pretty candid talks. He's straightforward. His money, do you remember when we had those debates and Ron Paul was there? And I was co-hosting the Financial Sense News Hour with Jim Paplava out of San Diego. It was a 45-minute daily and a two-hour weekend show. And we were saying, it's going to blow it's going to blow. The, the subprime mortgage market is going to blow. And sure. I remember Ron Paul talking about that during the debates, and they did a cutaway to Slick Romney. I'm sorry, Mitt Romney. Uh, 
I hated that guy. Yeah, I can't stand him. I cannot stand him. He oozes oil and slickness. It drives me nuts. But anyway, yeah. they did a cutaway to, to Romney, and Romney is looking at Ron Paul like, what is this guy talking about? Right. Boom! It all comes apart. And it, just the way that we had predicted on the show. Exactly. You know, it's, exactly. I was calling them. I said they're trading AAA securities that are worthless. And I said, I call them little bags of doggy poo-poo. And I said, there's nothing but dog poop inside with Christmas wrapping around it. Now, as long as nobody opens the package and looks inside, everybody thinks it's great. And we're all, yeah. and I said, at some point, somebody's going to look inside. It was even my co-host, uh, who's a money manager down in San Diego, and it was very popular because he was credited with being one of those few voices that correctly predicted the whole crash. He came back one day when we were doing the show, and he said, I was at lunch today, and I happened to be sitting at a table adjoining some realtors. And one realtor comes in, and he plops down, and he says, well, made another sale today, got $6,000 off of that in commission or whatever it was. He said, they're going to be bankrupt in 18 months, 24 months. He said, they can't afford this. But uh, he didn't care because he got his money. Right. Right after that, they're all scrambling to try to talk about this, including Slick Romney. Right. And Ron Paul knew what he was talking about. Right. Well, you know, but I would go even further than that, though. Go back to Ross Perot. You can still find his infomercial on YouTube if you look. And everything he said was going to happen with Reaganomics combined with NAFTA happened. The giant sucking sound south, I believe he said, where all of our jobs were going to go. It all happened. And everybody just said he was crazy. If you go back and watch it now, it's even worse because you're like, this guy was right. You know, especially if you live in communities like Detroit. Well, it was interesting because both Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh were just touting NAFTA as we were going mm -hmm. through it. I was on the air screaming about how bad it was. At the time, I sure. was a two-hour-a-day daily talk show in Denver, screaming. And finally, I got under Russia's skin because he on his show, he says, some guy out in Denver's calling me a Trojan horse. <laughs> Anybody know? who thought NAFTA was a good idea is absolutely a Trojan horse. Had to be, I think yeah. That's the perfect example, and that's why I know I make people mad sometimes when I bring it up, but Bill Clinton is like a revered hero of the Democrats for some reason. Then that leads to Hillary, who I would just, uh. But the thing is, I don't think that Ronald Reagan was malicious in what was going on. I think that he was being led down a certain path. Like, he was a guy that they wanted to run for president because they knew he was presentable. Yes. It's the same thing with Bush Jr. They ran Bush Jr. because Dick Cheney, they knew that he would never get elected. So that's what I think happened. The problem is, is that if you combine the regulation that's not really well thought out with NAFTA, then you get a situation where our middle class gets destroyed. And have, you, have you ever read, because you're absolutely right, and I don't bring this up with everybody, when you talk about Yuri Bezmenov, that was an interview done by the John Birch Society. Yeah. The Birchers have been very accurate. I'm not a Bircher, by the way, but I do have them on periodically. I was a friend for a long time with John McManus, who was their president. The Birchers have been very accurately in calling it Dr. Dennis Cuddy. I don't know if you've read any of his books about the globalists and this and that. He actually uses their quotes about what they tell you they're going to do. Same for the trilateralists like the Rockefellers. and these. Right. They're very candid if you just go read what they're saying. Most people mm -hmm. don't. And you're right. They play Socialist Party D against Socialist Party R, and their goal is to move us into this global socialist system. They're very open about it. And that's what you're watching. There is a third agenda afoot under there. Now, usually when you say that, people jump up and down and yell conspiracy theory. 
Well, they've done an excellent... Well, look at the term where that came from, and you can find declassified documents from the CIA about the JFK assassination, right. where they say, we're going to label people conspiracy theorists if they don't go along with the Warren Commission. And I don't try to get too deep into it because, you know, yeah, it does get you discredited pretty quickly. I mean, that's what they went after Ron Paul with, because he looked at Rudy Giuliani and he said, they don't attack us because we're free. They hate us because we bombed their country. They turned him into a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. And I've got questions about 9-11, and so did he. But what he thought, Ron Paul publicly said, I think that people got caught with their pants down and they're worried about getting in trouble because nobody got fired for anything that happened in 9-11. Nobody lost their job. And for that, they painted him that way. And I think that, unfortunately, there are some people out there whose job, it always seems to be to make conspiracy ideas sound so crazy. You know, like, I hate to say it, but I think Alex Jones does a good share of that. Sometimes the way he behaves makes anybody who might ever want to talk about some of those things look totally crazy. My wife suspects that he's a provocateur. Right. I would tend to wonder about that myself, because we can't even have a cut. You get Alex Jones label. That's what happens. If you want to have a good conversation about any of that, and if they can just conspiracy theory it, George Carlin did a bit about this, and I've been trying to find the clip. It wasn't a bit. It wasn't part of one of his comments. He was being interviewed, and he said, you know, he's like, you really think it's just totally insane that wealthy people might get together and have a plan? That could never happen? That's just the craziest thing you've ever heard? You know, and like, he's like, no, you're a kook, you're a conspiracy buff or something of that effect. Yeah, well, what is, what is, please pray tell me, what is Jackson Hole? What is Davos, Switzerland every year? Uh, I mean, sure. you know, what are the, uh, not the trilateralists, but the, uh, the Bilderbergers when they come together right. under incredible security? What do you think they're doing in there? And they don't even deny that they're there <laughs> because it would be impossible. But they just try to make anybody who talks about it look crazy. That's their solution. And unfortunately, it works. But George Carlin wasn't some nutcase, but he just made a very clear point. You don't think wealthy people have a plan. And the problem, this is part of the right-left fighting each other thing that bothers me, is that basically what I've kind of come to understand is this. Somebody once made a point about Fox News. They said that Fox News is wealthy people convincing middle-class people to blame poor people. And I hate to say it, but that's the truth. But the problem is, is that CNBC I'm sorry, MSNBC, is the same only in reverse, to convince poor people that their problems are because of middle class. The people who are actually the problem for everyone are at the top. I mean, here's an excellent example. Illegal immigrants taking our jobs. Have you ever noticed how the media only pushes the narrative in one of two directions, which is these people are coming to take our jobs. That's what the right is told, whereas the left is told these people are poor and just need you know, help and we should help them. You know who's not talked about in any of these situations? the people who employ them. Nobody talks about the wealthy guy who employs the Mexicans for pennies on the dollar and is exploiting them, which is what the left should be talking about. And nobody's talking about the fact that there are people who are illegally hiring illegal. Nobody talks about the wealthy people that are doing that because they don't want to hire them. You know, nobody discusses that. That whole element is just taken off the table. Why is that? Who benefits from us having this stupid argument about that that doesn't actually even address the root cause? Well, what's the root cause? Wealthy people don't want to pay us a fair wage. That's the root cause. Well, yes and no. Now, I'm going to come back on you on that because a very close friend of mine here, actually one of my audio engineers in his other incarnation, he and his dad own three dairies in California, a couple of almond orchards and citrus orchards. Every single one of their employees is Hispanic. And he Mm -hmm. said they all come in and they pay. Listen, they have treated their people exceptionally well. And he said, no, I believe that could happen. Yeah. No, I believe it does. 
And, you know, what that usually relates to is it probably means that the people you're talking about might be religious or moral. Yeah, they, they are. He is because he's moral. But he, he told me, he said, if you try to shut down Hispanic labor in the San Joaquin Valley, he said the whole agriculture industry will implode. And he said, here's how it goes. So these people come in. They come with their green cards. We have no way of knowing if they're fake or real. But we keep the documentation and we pay them their salaries. He said the next generation, their kids want nothing to do with the farm work. They want to move on. They want to move up. You can't blame them. Sure. So he said that's the real part. of. I have no problem with guest workers. The only problem I have with immigration is, number one, it's the law. And I said, if you don't like the law, change the law. But number two, what happens when you have people coming into your country and refuse to assimilate into its culture, but rather create a second subculture underneath. Yeah. That spells disaster, especially when it's a separate religious culture, which is what's going on in Europe. Sure. And I don't disagree with that. And I do believe that people like what you're talking about exist. I think that the missing cog in the American capitalist machine is there's no religion anymore in the super wealthy. And I'm not religious myself, but my point is is that there used to be a time when being an American entrepreneur, that part of your life, was being Christian, being moral. And somebody who has those kinds of morals doesn't do things like lay off most of your workforce just in time for Christmas to maximize profit. Absolutely. They would never do that, but they are now. And those are the people that Yuri Bezmanov is talking about who are going to buy the rope, they're going to be hung with. Because if you do stuff like that, then you make the American dream look like fiction. So then these kids want something different, and they're being prepared for it. And that's the element to it. Even if somebody's not Christian, they need to develop some semblance of understanding of basic decency and morality. Because otherwise, they are basically... So in the same way, for example, the Black Lives Matter makes black people look like violent criminals by the things that they're doing in riots, The wealthy are doing the same thing by following the caricatures that communists will make of what capitalists look like. They're doing exactly what is necessary to make everything that communist teachers are going to tell them about rich people look like they're true. If you can't have some basic semblance of the fact that you should care about your workers and treat them well because they're an essential part of your business, if that's how you approach things, that's how we used to approach things in this country. But instead, people are putting down the Bible and they're picking up Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is an extremely influential thinker in wealthy circles, and she teaches that your workers are parasites. She teaches that altruism is literally immoral. Being good to people, as far as charitable, is immoral. So that's who's replacing God in the minds of the wealthy. And that person, I'll give you an example of how bad this is, Anton LaVey, the guy who wrote the Satanic Bible, yeah. openly said that Ayn Rand was his main influence. And ironically, I liked a lot of Atlas Shrugged. I didn't like her other books. I thought they were weak. Atlas Shrugged fell apart at the end. She had a great story there with John Galt, etc. And then she got to the end and it was just bleh, it was just the screed of her philosophy, which right. I didn't agree with. But I did agree with her part that you have to let capitalism work. And I love the part where they remember they have John Galt under house arrest in this apartment in New York City. They want him to become the economic czar. And they say, OK, we're going to make you our economic czar. We'll do anything that you tell us to do. We have to get out of this horrible slum. He says, okay, you're going to do anything I tell you to do? Yeah, we'll do it. He said, abolish the income tax. 
oh, well, uh, geez, we can't do that. You need to understand. And he would tell them everything they needed to do to jumpstart right. the economy. And they kept saying, oh, well, we can't do that. <laughs> sure. Oh, it, no, was, it was a terrific book. Well, I think that people take that in a direction, though, like if we're going to say that selfishness itself is a virtue, then at the same time say that we don't need welfare because charity will do the work. Those two things don't work together. You can't make those two philosophies work together. If you're going to say that charity is evil because it's immoral somehow, according to Ayn Rand, but then we're going to replace welfare with charity, then what? Where's the bottom of that? And unfortunately, that's where I find that things start to fall apart for me. And I realize that basically at the end of the day, the kind of workers who do things like, I'll give you an example. In Greenville, Michigan, we had the largest refrigerator manufacturing plant in the world, and they were shutting it down. The labor union there met with them and said, you know, we're willing to take pay cuts. What do we have to do? And the guy looked at them and said, will you take $1.50 an hour? And the guy was like, well, no. <laughs> you know. He's like, I know it was a rhetorical question, but that's why we're moving to Mexico. <laughs> you know, so how do you maintain American capitalism in that situation? You can't. It just creates a scenario where these people have been convinced that the ideal working situations is sweatshops, where people live barely better than plantation slaves, maybe. That's the situation that they like. They like workers where your boots are completely on their throat. Now, don't get me wrong, the unions went too far. There's no question. The unions wanted too much money. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And- yeah, I'll be the first person to agree with you. Uh, my yeah. analogy is, the difference is, you have an engine. The engine produces heat and all sorts of other stuff. You need a peripheral set of equipment to manage the heat in the engine, the electricity it needs to generate, the water it needs to circulate, and it should be about 10% of the total energy coming out of the engine. Otherwise, the engine doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And so sure. I have no trouble with moderating thing. And that's exactly what you're because raw capitalism left undone will follow the path of greed without a religious break. It will follow that. But the right. problem is the socialist starts out by saying the engine is bad and therefore we need to pile all this stuff on. And when the engine just quits because it can't handle anymore, they go, see, it's because of the engine. Sure. And I agree. And that's why when I was trying to tell you about socialism that can work, it comes in very small yes. packages, but it's it's just people agreeing to work together voluntarily to run a business. Like that place, the commune I was talking about in the South, they have a business that they operate to pay for their communist community. And they all just participated in it together. There are Roman, I was part of a Roman Catholic religious order for a few years and we ran farms, other Catholic orders, like there's a group of Trappists in New Mexico do website design, and right. that works. The Mormons tried it twice. It failed disastrously. The Pilgrims and some of the other people coming here tried it, and it failed disastrously because the assumption is that everybody's willing to put into it to get something out, and that's fake. That is not human nature. Right. Well, that's why in order for the commune in the South to work, they tell you if you can't contribute, you're going to have to go. And they have to enforce that, see? Right. It has to be enforced. There's no question. I was getting at, there's a faction of libertarianism that doesn't get as much play, but it's called left libertarianism. And it's about cooperative businesses that can exist in a capitalist society. And there are some good examples, like Mondragon Corporation, for example, is a mostly worker-owned cooperative business. It follows the model that you get people to work harder in the company if they get an immediate response because everybody's a shareholder. So there are all their individual money coming in 
comes from how well the company works. But you can also get kicked out. If you're not contributing, then the company could go, yeah, sorry, you're not keeping up your end of the bargain here. Right. And that's what the people coming from England had to do because you had all these noble rich kids that were secondhand noble people. In other words, they'd never inherit because they were the second born or third born. Sure. And they finally had to say, you don't work, you don't eat. End of story. Sure. And I think where it comes into the point is just to say that poor people could band together and try to build something together and work on it together. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not going to work for everybody. And you don't force people to be involved in it. It has to be voluntary, not just because it's immoral to force people to do things, but because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And that's why I was saying is that there are leftist thinkers who just believe in the idea of cooperation. The problem is, is that that has then been saddled with all of the other insanity that communists, when they get involved in identity politics, bring with them. You know, that's where the problems are. So I guess what I'm getting at is I'm not trying to convince you this is what you should do. I'm trying to point out that there's a perspective of some people who just want to work together to achieve something. But there's a lot of work involved in doing that to make it work. Yep. That's what I'm getting. I'm just trying to separate. You no, know, you can get together collectively. You know, we used to call them family. In the Celtic islands, we would have called them clans, really big families, you know, who kind of watch each other's backs and work together. But I agree absolutely on the issue of you can't have unfettered capitalism, you can't have unfettered socialism. There has to be kind of a balance. To those of us, like when Bernie evolved from going, like, because he went through his phases of being a Marxist. So when he got towards the end of it, is like he started to look around and he's like, well, that authoritarian crap definitely is. I'm not on board with that. You know, and these countries have caused all kinds of other problems for themselves. Well, what's going on in the Nordic countries? And I think that people who get involved in something like that should be able to do so voluntarily. They shouldn't be forced to do so. So that's where a libertarian socialist comes from. Yeah, except let me tell you, as a Christian, the reason our Constitution was framed the way it was is because the bulk of them were Christians. Other uh, Jefferson and Franklin were deists. Right. And Christianity starts out by assuming that we're a fallen people and we have this tendency toward rascalhood and that we have to build in protection. If you don't keep God in the mix, it'll never work because you have to have a people which is self-governing. You just can't have, because look at what happens on the other side. If people don't do it, they don't go along with it, then you have to come up with a secret police. You have to come up with a monitoring system. Then we have to tell everybody what's in and what's out, what they can say, what they can think. And finally, the whole thing just falls apart. And that's why it just, you know, the, the founders were right about that. You can't do this any other way. Well, there was the assumption, I think, was that there would always be some kind of unifying religious belief. Yeah. You know, and there just isn't. That's the problem is I think that we have to look at what happened on the right end of that to help facilitate that. And unfortunately, as Jesus pointed out in the Bible, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Well, what he was getting at is it changes your whole mentality. Like, I have wealthy family. They don't even think poor people are human. Like, yeah, they, no, they, I, get to a I point understand. Where, yeah, if you don't make at least 100000 a year, you're like an ape to them. I mean, they don't literally say that, but that's what it amounts to. And I think that's where we run into problems. I guess what I wish is that more people would have conversations like you and I are having about trying to seek a balance in it. The kind of people that I work with, you know, on the deeper level are the kind of people who feel like if the world was to collapse, we should create a situation where people have the right to form their own communities, perhaps cooperate as a federation, 
for the purpose of mutual defense yeah. and trade. It's like, okay, well, you know, if you guys want to be libertarian socialists and you're not aggressing on me, maybe we can trade. Maybe there's something that your commune needs that we have or, yeah. or vice versa. But it's all on a voluntary rather than a coerced basis. Same right, problem. Exactly. Same problem with the precedent we're setting with vaccines that we're mandating them. Now, wait a minute. Sure. I thought the argument from the left was a woman had the right to do with her body what she wanted to do, and right. government shouldn't be yep. involved. Now, flip. They've gone the other way. Well, that whole vaccine thing drives me nuts. But yeah. again, like I'm the one who is supposed to be left leaning, and I'm not getting vaccinated. The funny thing is, is like you know when you're talking to people on the left about it, um, you guys all hate big pharma, so we're just supposed to trust them. And like right. you think that because they demanded that they get immunity from being sued, you know, if this goes bad, you think they asked for that for nothing? These are the same people who brought us thalidomide. Yep. You're old enough to remember thalidomide. I remember. Thal oh no, it's totally safe. You know, when we like mutated. Let me uh, I, uh, go to Amazon, look in their book section and search Dennis and then Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y. You would be well advised to read some of his, like his book, The Globalists, Secret Records Reveal the Men, the Money, and the Methods Behind the New World Order. He used to be a senior associate at the U.S. Department of Education, has researched all of their books, and he shows the quotes, you know, in their papers and their letters and what they were talking about. It's exactly what you're talking about among the rich. And so the mm -hmm. plan, the global socialist plan, like the Socialist International, is a group of elites at the top and the rest of us all relatively poor at the bottom. That's the goal. So, all right, Neil Kiernan, who's host of V Radio, a podcast devoted to independent and third-party activists, not right or left, but rather just awake. Your blogs and websites for people who want to pursue your activities. V hyphen or minus radio dot US. That will take you to a one-link website where you can find my YouTube channel, my podcast. I do have a blog that I usually use just as part of my podcast, but you can find everything there for me. I would advise that you subscribe to as many of my social medias as you're comfortable with because YouTube throttles me pretty hard. So I have a lot of subscribers, for example, who tell me, hey, I didn't get notifications of your show. Must mean I'm doing something right. Yes, it seems like they have trouble with truth. I always like the way the censors of truth are getting untruthed themselves. Say, for example, the possibility that the coronavirus might have been coming from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, that was right, hooted down right. and struck down, and then all of a sudden, oh, well, maybe it is. Oh, yeah, well, shucky-do about that. You know, funny point about that. Brett Weinstein is a leftist, and he was one of the people who said it probably came out of Wuhan laboratory on Joe Rogan years ago. But we've turned that into a partisan issue, too. You're not allowed to say that unless you're on the right, supposedly. Well, even people on the left know that that's what's going on. Yeah, it was even absurd when, remember when President Trump came out and when he said, you know, this combination of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine looks like it has real promise. You had, uh, right. well, the governor of your state, you know, we're going to prohibit that. Why? Because Trump said it. It had nothing to right. do with whether or not it was true. Oh, no, absolutely. There's no question. And, you know, the big problem is, aside from that, who has a vested interest in making sure that we don't think about ivermectin? Well, that would be big pharma because you can't make any money on ivermectin. Because it's been around so long, it's generic. They don't want the solution to be cheap. They want money out of it. Never waste a good crisis. No, I, I see it. So we will talk again, Neil. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you very much. His podcast at v-radio.us. Podcast devoted to independent and third-party activists. Now, see, Neil has brought up what I have been saying all along, like even about global warming, say, for example. You just want reason and discussion in the midst of the whole thing not assertions that one particular side is true.
that the discussion is over, that the consensus is unanimous, that the blah, 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 blah. What I want are answers to my questions. And that's what we haven't been able to get for 30 years. And when you ask the questions, you get back in your face cliches, ridicule, hyperbole, and personal attacks. Those are the giveaways that there is something radically wrong with the theory of anthropogenic global warming being a radical threat to mankind. And the models, I don't know if you looked at the latest report, aren't bearing it out. But this is true clear across the board is that the political debate is separated because, and I've said it over and over, two different groups of people, two different groups of reasoning, starting with different groups of assumptions and facts, and then they arrive at different conclusions. That's why there's no common ground here, and it's very difficult to achieve it unless the parties are willing to begin interchanging. And that's where you have hope, because just each side listening to its own side and fighting and slinging tomatoes at the other side. This is not going to cut it if society is to stay afloat, especially when one side, and this is coming from the left, the progressive left, not your average democratic left, they're putting penalties on people when they don't agree, whether it's about vaccines or global warming or this or that, they're being threatened with their job, being fired, etc., etc. That's called the argumentum ad baculum, meaning the argument of the club. You don't agree with us, bop, we'll hit you over the head with a club, forcing you to agree. And so a lot of people are self-censoring as a result of that. They don't want to put their jobs at risk. You know, you have to remember, where are you going to fight your battle? Anyway, do pray for us for provision and protection. Pray for those suffering for their faith around the world and pray for those in charge of your own particular government. It's a time that reform happened, and reform is always a difficult, grungy process, just like it was getting rid of slavery. It was a difficult, grungy process. It's the name of the game. Lord willing, we'll see you next time. On behalf of producer Steve Schiller, I'm John Leffler. We're at steelonsteel.com. The program is Steel on Steel. Thank you.